So we're starting our Easter series today. Uh, Pastor Joy and I are going to kind of go back and forth uh, with it. So I'm this week, he's next week. It should be good. I'm excited about it. Um, one thing I didn't say in the first service, and I think it's kind of important, or not, it's not important at all, really, but it helps us kind of visualize what we're, what we're trying to accomplish through the Easter series, or at least in my head. I don't know about in Joe's head, but in my head, this is <laughs> this image that's up here behind. You can see that white part that's kind of in the back. That's supposed to represent a throne, and then obviously you can see the cross that's kind of in front of that throne. And what we're trying to do kind of throughout the Easter series is show that Jesus is ascending to a throne, but it's not the throne that was expected, and it's not the throne um, that his disciples or really people in Israel at the time wanted him to ascend to. The throne that he's ascending to is the cross. And that becomes apparent through a couple different uh, ways. Um, but today, we're going to look at another contrast that we see in Jesus and between him and his disciples. The Jesus movement, right, Christianity, is very different from most other movements in this way. You never see, uh, like, politicians or, or people who are trying to start and lead a movement, you never see them like showcasing their failures, right? I don't know if you guys know, but the tw they're already amping up for the 2020 uh, presidential debates. I'm sure you know. And get ready, right? It's going to be messy. But what you never see is one side, like, like the one side that's trying to promote themselves. You never see them showcasing their failures, right? They're not going to bring up, like, 10 months ago I said this, but now I say this, and I'm the best thing ever, right? They don't do that. They just, that didn't happen. And I'm the best. I'm going to solve all the problems and the solutions, right? And the other side will bring up the failures and kind of try to, to um, bring them down. But you never see them doing it, right? Or to put it maybe, I mean, you guys probably haven't run for political office. I know I haven't. But I have uh, applied for jobs before, and I'm sure some of you have done that. And so when you're applying for a job, when you go in for the interview, you kind of are doing the same thing. You're going to highlight your, your successes, the things that you're good at, and you're going to kind of maybe not try to bring up the things that you're not good at. Like one of the good questions that interviewers try to say is like, what is your biggest failure and how will that help you here, right? And then you're like, hmm, what failure can I bring up that won't make me look bad, right? So, <laughs> right, uh, here's the thing that I did. I went to an interview when I was interviewing for a church down in Colorado. It was a very long process. It was kind of surprising. They interviewed my wife, Katrina, twice before they even talked to me, because they had a kind of a bad experience with the previous guy that they had hired, so they were being cautious. And the first interview that I had wasn't even with the pastor of the church I was getting hired with. He had me go through this church planning thing with two other guys that I'd never met before, and it was going to be a three-hour-long questionnaire of, like, real-life experiences back and forth. It seemed really intense in my mind, and I was, I was nervous about it. And so Katrina was going to come along with me and just kind of be support. And we get there, we show up, uh, we're planning for this long day, and I take off my coat, and I'm wearing this really— I thought it was nice, a nice button-up brown shirt, and I take off my coat, and right here is a gigantic blob of toothpaste. <laughs> Classy, right? So, and they're like, oh, uh, slapped on yourself a little bit. And I'm just like, oh, no. So I'm like, oh, they're like, oh, if you need to go to the bathroom to wash it up. So I go into the bathroom and wash it up, and it bleached the shirt. 
don't know if you know that, but toothpaste, you know, cleans everything. So <laughs> I went through this whole interview with this giant blob of my messiness on my shirt. My friend Chad had a very similar, not really, his, I think his is worse. <laughs> so he was going to an interview, and we were in Oregon. And it, in Oregon, it rains almost constantly through the winter. And it's kind of a drizzle rain. It's not usually a heavy rain. But what happens is it drizzles on the trees, and the trees drop these kind of big blops. And it, if you're really, if you grew up in Oregon, you don't wear raincoats or like umbrellas and stuff because you just live that way. So he goes to his interview with, you know, no umbrella or whatever. That's just the norm. He goes to the interview, sits through the whole thing, and then right at the end, they said, um, on your way out, you might want to go uh, check yourself out in the bathroom. So he goes into the bathroom. And he sat through that entire interview with a giant blob of bird poo running down the side of his face <laughs> the whole way through. And he went back, like, what cleaned up was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that. Was, why didn't you tell me, right? And they're like, well, we didn't want to stress you out in the interview. We wanted you to be able to, you know, answer. And he's like, oh, my gosh, I sat through the whole thing with bird poo running down my head. He didn't get the job. I don't know if that had anything to do with it. Um, but we don't do that, right? You're not going to show up to something and highlight your failures or, or you know, have your, your poo right out in the open, right? That's not how we do that. But the Gospels aren't, are totally different. The 12 disciples throughout the Gospels are highlighted in bright colors, vivid detail as total failures at following Jesus. And that's remarkable that in, in the text that we go to to learn about Jesus, the key leaders after he leaves are shown to be absolute disasters at following Jesus. Just total failures, right? We're going to look at uh, this wonderful story. I love this story. And in Matthew 26. So turn in your Bibles. We're going to be kind of going through this. And, and so have your Bible open in front of you because I'll be bouncing back and forth to this and talking. And we're going to go through a lot of verses. So hopefully you have your helmets on. I know you guys are really used to going through only one verse uh, uh, on a Sunday morning. But uh, today we're going to go through, that was a plug at Joe, but <laughs> we're going to go through a whole bunch today. Uh, so we're going to start at verse 30 in chapter 26. And just to give you a little background of what's happening here, they're coming out of the Lord's Supper. So Jesus has just had a huge Passover meal with his disciples. He has uh, started, instituted the communion, which we're going to take later. And it's right after that, so if you know what that's about, kind of keep that in your mind. And they go to the Mount of Olives, it says in verse 30. So they sing a song after the Passover meal, and then they go out to pray. They go out to this Mount of Olives. And Jesus says here in verse 31, Then Jesus said to them, You will fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you in Galilee. So he pauses on his way up to this mountain. He pauses and talks to his disciples and says, Guys, this night is going to be bad. It's not going to be a good night. And I'm going to die. It's going to start tonight. He tells them this is going to be a bad night, and you guys are going to fail. You're going to fail me. You're going to fall away. And he quotes from Zechariah here, this, this, this shepherd 
uh, will be struck and the sheep will be scattered. If you've never spent some time in Zechariah, as I was studying this passage, I was looking at Zechariah and I realized I need to spend some more time in Zechariah. That book is crazy. It is like this, it's a bizarre collection of dreams and poems from the, from the uh, prophet Zechariah. And it's pretty wild. So um, check out Zechariah. I mean, you probably are like, that's in the Bible? Yes, it is. It's, it's a pretty awesome book. Um, the reason that he's quoting Zechariah here is to kind of bring up the history of Israel, all right? So at the very beginning of, the Isra- of Israel, when they are kind of being put together as a nation, right? Moses goes to the Mount of Sinai, right? The Israelites are all there, and he goes up to the top of Mount Sinai, and he's talking with God, and what are the Israelites doing at the bottom of the mountain? They are failing. You've probably heard the story of the golden calf. So right there, where Moses is up talking with God, the Israelites are failing. Uh, And the rest of the history of Israel is kind of like this. God trying to talk to them, pulling them in, and them walking away, failing God at every turn. The history of Israel is one of failure right from the beginning. And the prophets, once they come along, they know that what is needed is a leader to be better than any of the kings or leaders that they have had. Yet, they need a new David. David. King David was like the best one they had, and even he messed up. So they need a new King David, a new Messiah, to lead them in ways that they couldn't do themselves. But like the prophets Isaiah and Zechariah aren't very optimistic about how Israel will respond to this new leader. So as they uh, start writing, they wrote a whole bunch of things about how Israel is going to deal with this leader. In Isaiah 53, it shows that this leader is going to be struck. He's going to serve. He's going to be beaten and all these things, right? And uh, Zechariah says, I will strike this shepherd. God is going to, this is the plan. This shepherd is going to be struck and the flock will be scattered, right? And it's so through the striking of this shepherd, of this king, and the rejection of this king, that is how this king will save his people. That's how he's going to lead. And Jesus is kind of alluding to this whole grand history here. And Peter's reply to Jesus, you're going to fail. This is what's going to happen. You guys are going to scatter. Peter's reply is, not me. Nope, nope, nope. I am with you, Jesus, to the end. No way, right? He says here, uh, Peter answers, though they might fall away. He's kind of saying the other disciples, they might fall away, but I will not. I will stick with you. And Jesus says to him, listen, Peter, listen. That's my translation. He says, truly, truly. But he's basically like, pay attention, Peter. Listen, tonight, you, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Not once, Peter. Three times. And Peter says, no, 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 no. No, I will not. Not me. Even if I have to die, I will not deny you. Right? And all the other disciples kind of chime in. They're like, oh, me too. Yeah, no, no, I'm with Peter in this one. We're not going to deny you. You can almost see Peter thumping his chest. No, I've got your back, right? And really what's happening is he's got toothpaste running down his shirt. We know. We're like, no, Peter, you're betraying yourself right now. You, you know who you're talking to. He just said that you're going to betray him. That's going to happen. No, me too. We're going to stick with you. And so they go a little farther, and they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Gethsemane means an oil press, to press oil. And so it's this olive grove. So there's a whole bunch of these uh, really gnarly-looking old, cool trees. And in the hour that follows, 
right? The hour that follows, we, or two, we don't know how long exactly, but in the hour or two that follows, Jesus will bear his soul, and we will see pain beyond imagining. What happens here in this garden this night is one of the most important events in the history uh, of the Christian movement. If we didn't have this story, our understanding of Jesus would be impoverished. Uh, we would know a lot about Jesus, we would, because of all the other stories that we have, but we wouldn't know the unique thing that this story shows us, that reveals to us about who Jesus is. And what happens here, we don't learn from any other part of the book. So they go to this olive grove. It looks like, looks like that. Uh, this is the same spot. It still exists today. These trees that are there now are 500 years old or so. Right now there's a Catholic church kind of commemorating this story that's kind of off to the left, I think, of where this picture is. But this is where Jesus goes. It's this, this orchard of olives with these kind of gnarly trees, and they go in the middle of the night. So it is dark. It is calm. Have you ever been in the forest at night? It's, it's got life. It's kind of different. You know, it's got peacefulness. But if you've ever gone to an orchard, that peacefulness is like more settled because it's cultivated, it's not wild, right? So that's where they go, this very peaceful and dark area. And Jesus goes with his disciples, and he says to his disciples here in verse 36, he says to his disciples, sit here while I go over here and pray. So he takes the, his main group of disciples, and they go over here by this tree. Nice tree, huh? And he, he tells them to go there, and then he says, I'll go over here and pray. And he takes with him, it says, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And so he's got his 12 disciples over here, and then he's got these three. And these three are the ones that he usually takes with him when he's got to do something serious, when he's got to pray, when he's got to have a moment with God the Father. So you've got his friends, but here he's got his boys, the ones that he has drawn his inner circle, right? And he tells that inner circle, he says to them, he began, well, verse 37, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. How many of you have used the word sorrowful this week, like in the last week? Have you, I am sorrowful today. Have you done that? Or troubled? Have you, maybe you've used the word troubled, but those are kind of words that we don't necessarily use all the time. So what is another word that kind of makes sense? What's another translation? Look at your Bibles. Do you have another translation in there? You might. Let's go ahead and call it out. What would be another word for sorrowful? Sad. What else? I'll use Joe's joke. I'm not going to sign you up for anything. You can go ahead and say things, okay? <laughs> We're not, not going to write you down, hey, they said things, so now they're volunteered. No. Uh, what would be another word? Think about it. Well, another word for sorrowful. Heartbroken. Sure. Agitated. What else? Disturbed or distressed, right? Distressed, I think, is good because our culture is super obsessed with stress. Here is Jesus overwhelmed with stress, right? Uh, distressed, agitated, anguished, right? To put it bluntly, and I know this is blunt, Jesus is having a panic attack. Maybe you've never thought of Jesus in that light. It, we get, the reason I'm saying that is here in Matthew it says to be sorrowful, but in Mark chapter 14, verse 33, uh, the Hebrew phrase there is greatly amazed and sore troubled. Greatly amazed. So to put that in more modern English terms, it would be this feeling of terrified surprise. Terrified surprise. He's having a panic attack. His soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, is what he says right after this. He began to have this surprised 
what did I say, terrified, surprised, and then he says to his boys, right, Peter, James, and John, he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and just watch with me. Just stay awake is what that watch with me means. Just stay awake. I need you. Just stay awake. And up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke, up to this point, Jesus has been the rock. He has been calm. He has been confident. We've seen him get angry. But even in that moment, he was totally in control, right? He, but here, he just comes unglued. And for the first time, we see Jesus in a totally different light. I don't know if you can remember the first time you saw your parents break. Or, or your mentor, the person that you looked up to. For, for me, it was, it was my grandpa. I, he was, my whole childhood life, he was just sturdy. Like, just strong and stoic. And I never saw anything else, so I thought. And uh, several years ago, he had a stroke. And as he was coming out of that and wrestling with what that meant, uh, you know, his body falling apart and getting old, I saw him break. I saw him cry for the first time ever. And it totally rocked how I viewed him. And it wasn't a bad thing, though, right? It wasn't like, like suddenly he had changed and had become something else, right? No, that's my grandpa. He was that way all the way through. And as I saw him cry and break, it allowed me to, like, reflect on the memories that I have of him from before that, and it made me view them in a totally different light. It gave me a picture of who it meant to be my grandpa. Totally different. It was more holistic, and I could see the love and this, this just extremely passionate man uh, looking over my memories that I hadn't seen before. I had just seen this stoic, strong dude, and then I saw him break and cry. And, and now, every, every time our family like gets together, man, the man is just like in love with being around his family, and I can see that way differently than I saw before. It gave me a greater picture of who he was. So Jesus here, the stability of the universe, right, is so agitated under the weight of what is coming that he says his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He's so overwhelmed that he's not even using his own words. He's not coming up with a statement. He's pulling it from Psalm 42 that we read before. He's, cre he's pulling in this image, this poem. Psalm 42 is absolutely beautiful. The arc of the poem goes like this, the, right? The poet is having, I had it marked. There we go. Psalm 42, right? The poet is, my, I, I thirst, I, I strive after God, but my favorite line in this is verse three where it says, my tears have been my food day and night while they are saying to me all day long, where is your God? His enemies are mocking him, making fun of him, beating up on him. And it's the arc of the poem is him kind of moving into this self-talk. Well, why are you upset? Why are you uh, feeling this way? Put your hope in God. We're going to continue to read. We read one through eight earlier. Let's read uh, nine through um, the rest of it. It says, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. That line, with a deadly wound in my bones, is what Jesus is referencing. That deep felt sorrow to death. They say to me all day long, where is, where is your God? And then he switches to this kind of self-talk. Why? 
are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So Jesus, this poem is the journey of working through your feelings and fear and remembering that God is who we hope in. So I just want to ask, do you have a verse like that? Do you have a psalm that when you get to the point where your life is falling apart and you do not know what to say, can you rely on God's scripture like Jesus did here? I hope you do. And if you don't, Psalm 42, read it a few times. Have some cups of coffee with it. Look over this story here in Gethsemane where Jesus is, is wrestling and, and ponder this. This story deserves way more time than a Sunday morning, right? I, I hope that you have many, many cups of coffee just pondering over this story and what it means for the picture of Jesus. So he asks his disciples, just stay awake. Can you just stay awake? I just need some human th- sympathy as he goes and wrestles with his father. And in verse 39, look at, look at your word. Verse 39, he goes a little farther, right? So you got his disciples, you've got his boys, and Jesus still goes farther away, and he falls down on his face and prays. There's only been two times in my life where I have fallen down on my face to pray, and let me tell you, those are not pleasant. Just being so overwhelmed and so uh, at a loss for what to do, they just lay down. Not in control, like you're laying on your side or your back or you're kneeling. Kneeling isn't enough. You just lay down and, and give it to God. That's what Jesus does. It's the image of a person whose body is giving out. The Gospel of Luke goes farther and says that he's so stressed and agitated that he starts bleeding from his pores. This is the state that Jesus is in right now. And he prays this prayer, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, not as I will, but as you will. So he prays this prayer, My Father, not as I will, but as you will. Does that sound familiar? It should. He's taught us this prayer, the Lord's Prayer. He's praying it right here. He doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know what to do. And he says, Father, not my will, yours be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Let's say it together because this prayer is, is beautiful and wonderful. Here we go. The Lord's Prayer. My Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the glory, power forever. Amen. Wow, I switched that last part. But that's okay, because that last part, he didn't teach us. We added that later. So, <laughs> but it's still good. We can say it. That's a good part. But the, the, the kingdom, the power, the glory, that's added. Okay. Uh, so Jesus here, he's in his darkest moment. And what is he doing? He's going to his prayer, the prayer that he was showing his disciples. And, and yes, it feels very formulaic when we say it like we just did, right? We're all like, our Father, we got to leave space to like catch up with each other, right? Um, it feels formulaic, like I have to say this, and then I say that, and then I say this. But here is Jesus applying it to a real-life situation, right? He's overwhelmed, he is stressed, and he goes to the Lord's Prayer. This is where he gets his sense of stability. This is where he's processing his emotions, 
Because, listen, it's not news to Jesus that he's going to die. This isn't like new information that he's just all of a sudden wrestling with, right? He's been talking about this for 15 pages in my Bible. I'm going to die. I'm going to go to heaven. The shepherd's going to be struck. He's been talking about this. This is not new stuff. He's not learning uh, something new about God's will, right? I don't know what you know about Jesus, but we believe that he is fully God. But he is also fully human. He's fully God. He's fully human. And what's happening here is his humanity, his emotion, his body is catching up with his brain. He's, he's rest, his humanity is rest, wrestling what his deity has known all along. He's coming to terms with what it means to be this messianic king that I was talking about before. That somehow he is going to save and secure by not being saved. And he's wrestling with that. And he, and he just throws it out there. He says, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. This cup. It's this really intriguing image that we get throughout Scripture um, of God's judgment and wrath on humanity. That's what Jesus is talking about. Let's read... Uh, we, we see it in a whole bunch of different spots. Uh, the three that I'll give you, write them down real quick, is uh, Psalm 75, Isaiah 51, and Jeremiah 25. This is a really cool image of, of God's judgment. Let's, I'm going to read a verse out of Psalm 75. Verse 8 says this, In the hand of the Lord is a cup of full foaming wine mixed with spices, and he pours it out on the wicked of the earth. Drink it down to its very dregs. So this cup, right, it's this image of this beautifully, like, ornate, awesome, cool cup. It's got high alcohol content, foaming wine mixed with spices, and this thing is desirable, and it is not good for you. It, it's this paradox. It takes the form of something that we want, but it's something that will cause us the wrath of God. So what God does in these poems, right, with this cup, is he makes the people drink it down to the bottom. All the way. Drink all of it. And there's lots of ways of exploring the meaning of God's judgment in the Bible, right? And all of them are super cool and profound. Uh, but this image of the cup is the one that shows up most often. We usually jump to the idea of God's wrath of, like, Zeus standing on the mountain, like, throwing lightning bolts, right? That's totally what comes to our head first when we think of God's wrath. Uh, but that is in the Bible a little bit. But usually, more often than not, it's this image of the cup. Paul, in Romans 1, kind of describes this a little better. He doesn't say specifically this image of the cup, but he describes the wrath of God this way, of God giving people over to the consequences of things that they choose, and the things that we choose lead to destruction. And that is the image that Jesus is using, that this cup uh, of the choices that people want to make that's going to lead to destruction, he's going to take that. And his calling is to drink that cup on the behalf of his people. And it's kind of sound, it might sound abstract, right? But it's really not. Jesus has been talking about this kingdom, this, this upside down version of how the world should be from what we know it to be. That the king that Jesus is trying to 
that is, the king that Jesus is, uh, this king loves his enemies, right? That's counterintuitive. We don't do that. But Jesus wants us to. We love, we're supposed to love our enemies, right? Uh, Jesus has been touching, te- touching, teaching um, some of his most famous teachings, right? The Roman soldier, they had a rule that you were supposed to carry, a Roman soldier could pick anybody and you'd have to carry their stuff for a mile. Well, Jesus says, when you get to the end of that mile, carry it another one. Carry it another mile. And when you get to the end of that, uh, when you put down his stuff, ask him if he's got any prayer requests that you can pray for. And when he slaps you because he thinks you're being crazy, uh, say, hey, I noticed you've got some anger management issues. Would you like to take out a little bit more and offer him the other cheek? That is this upside-down loving uh, leader that Jesus is showing uh, to be. That's the nature of the kingdom, and it sounded so, so stupid to the people in Jesus' time, and it still sounds so off to us if we don't saturate ourselves in Jesus. Israel's leaders have rejected this kingdom that Jesus has been teaching, and they're rejecting Jesus. And the form the cup will take of Israel's choosing what it wants. Not the way of Jesus, the way but the way that most humans take, and the way, it's the way of violence. It's the way of revolt, of, of, of being, pushing and being violent against those who we don't like, or those who are killing our people, right? Or, or, or those who are our enemies. The cup of God's wrath will be poured out, and Jesus is to drink it. That's his calling. But he says, if it's possible, can we do something else? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't want to do it. Uh, but notice, immediately he comes right around the bend, and he says, I don't want to do this, but my life is not about what I want. My life is not about uh, a m- me. My life is about the will of the Father. And he just lays it there, and he says, not my will, but yours be done. Just imagine going through that for an hour. It's amazing. And he gets up, and he comes back to his disciples. Verse 40, take a look. And he came back to his disciples and he found them sleeping. And he says to Peter, he wakes him up and he says to Peter, so you couldn't stay awake for one hour? When I need you the most, you couldn't stay awake for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter, I just told you that you're going to deny me, that your hour is coming and you're sleeping. You should be praying too. You should be in turmoil. Like, come on, Peter. You're, he, I, I just think that Jesus is just fed up. Like, what are you doing? You couldn't even stay awake. And remember, Peter, I won't abandon you. No, not me. No, not me. And here he is, asleep. So Jesus leaves. He goes away. In verse 42, he continues his prayer. It says again, second time he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Is that the same prayer that he prayed before? Take a look. Is it the same? No, it's not. What's different? The first time it says, if it's possible, let it pass. And second time, he's moved forward. He's gone beyond. It's not possible for me to avoid this, is it? 
Okay. Okay. May your will be done. He's reckoning, right? He's, he's dealing with his humanity. He's dealing with his emotions. And it's not because, the, he, he knows it's not because the father doesn't love him or because he doesn't uh, love the father. Right? He calls him my father. Uh, but he's, he's wrestling with being called to live this upside down kingdom that he's been teaching about the whole time. Your will be done. And he goes back and the disciples are there and what are, what are they doing? They're asleep again. And why are they asleep? Because their eyes are heavy. I don't know. <laughs> when you get tired to the point, right? They just ate a huge meal. Like, we could be nice to these guys, I guess. Because, man, when you're tired and you can't keep your eyes open. I, I was driving down to Colorado with my buddy, Kai. Usually when I'm driving, I do a pretty good job staying awake. One time, I was driving up on the High Line in a big big huge delivery truck and i i dozed off like that kid like and man i never will do that again anytime i feel myself tired i'm pulling over but this one time i was driving with my kai my my buddy kai down to colorado he was driving and i was kind of dozing because if i'm in the passenger seat i'm out and he says hey hey wake up wake up can you keep me awake i'm feeling tired can you just stay awake with me and i'm like yes i can do that let's talk about something kai i'll keep you awake you know four minutes later i'm out I'm sleeping. I couldn't do it. The spirit is willing. But the flesh is weak. We think so highly of ourselves sometimes. Oh, you guys. So Jesus goes away again, goes back to pray. And it says here in the scripture that he prays the same thing, same stuff. So he prays it again. Three times, three times he goes and prays to the Father. Jesus, the stability of the universe, right? He's broken. He's facing his human condition. He's facing his existence as a human. And he's, remember, he's not learning anything new. It's not like he's discovering something about God's will. He knows it. He knows the Father better than any of us, but his emotions are catching up with his brain. So throughout the Gospels, we've got the Jesus who gives us life, right? Living water. We've got Jesus who's victorious over death and sin. We've got Jesus who's, who's come to be present with us forever. And then there is this story. Frail Jesus who meets his greatest moment of fear, confusion, and pain. And some of you know those nights. Some of you have been through that. This story of Jesus, he's God become human and God joins us in these moments. Some of you have been there where your world is unraveling and your prayers just feel like they hit the ceiling and you're convinced that nobody cares and everyone's asleep around you. Everyone's abandoned you. You feel alone. You've been there. And the power of this story isn't even that Jesus is with you. It's that you are with Jesus. Because he's no stranger to the fear and the pain of the human condition. He knows it. I would say he knows it better than any of us could know it. Everyone fails Jesus, but he will never fail us. He will never fail you. Verse 45, he goes back and guess what? Finds the disciples sleeping. They're sleeping and he says, hey, wake up, guys. The hour has come, right? Uh, verse 45, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is here. And here we go. 
we have calm, confident, resolute Jesus again. It doesn't mean that he didn't have a moment, right, of, of the doubt, of that struggle. But it's somehow precisely through that moment that he becomes confident again. He's done this before where he goes off, something huge happens, and then he goes off and prays. He secludes himself and prays. We've seen him do that, but we haven't had this intimate picture of what it looks like until here. Jesus doesn't fail in the face of his most intense death, the future that's coming to him. He alone does not fail to follow the Father and submit to his will to drink the cup that was meant for us. Jesus is amazing. He's awesome. We're going to continue the story here and kind of finish out uh, uh, the story. I'm going to read quite a bit. We're going to read this next section, starting at verse 47. While he was still speaking, so we got Jesus, just woke the disciples up, and here comes Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. So just to give you an image, uh, engage your brain here, uh, what's happening is it's dark. They're in that garden, and you're coming up with a huge crowd to 12 dudes in, in the garden. Which one are we getting? We don't know. We have, it's dark, and but Judas knows Jesus quite intimately, so he comes up to him and gives him this kiss. There's no floodlights in the garden here, right? It's dark, and so they need a sign, so they do that. So he comes up and kissed him in verse 50. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. I've always found it profound that Jesus looks into the eyes of his betrayer and calls him friend. Just think on that. And when they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him, and behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And we learn from uh, the Gospel of John that that's Peter. Peter whips out his sword, and he's going to slice. Uh, uh, let's think about it. <laughs> Was he aiming for his ear? No. He's trying to take the guy's head off. It, you don't, like, attack someone and go, I'm going to get your ear. No. Right? He, he's going to whack this guy's head off, and he doesn't even do that right. He misses, right? And who does he go after? It's the servant of the high priest. So in this crowd of soldiers, there's the one guy there from the high priest that's meant to make sure that Jesus gets high. He goes after number one of the group. He goes after the number one guy and tries to take his head off. So Peter has already failed Jesus by falling asleep. By doing nothing. And here he is awake, finally able to take action, and he fails Jesus again. And it's not by missing and not killing the dude. It's by, by even doing that. By, by not understanding the whole point of the story. This upside-down kingdom where we're going to love our enemies, Peter, not take their heads off. Where we're going to let, right, turn the other cheek, carry their stuff. Could you imagine reading this story, right, in, in, in the beginning of Christianity, reading this story, and, and seeing Peter take these actions, and then he gets up to speak? Like, what? This guy? Like, dude, he messed up all over the place. Peter's going to talk to us? Oh, man. 
Jesus lays into him. That's why we know that this action wasn't the right action. Jesus says to him in verse 52, put your sword back in its place. For those who take the sword will perish by the sword. If you're going to fight, you're going to resort to violence, you're going to attack somebody, you're going to get it in return. That's how it works. But that's not how we're leading here, Peter. We love our enemies. We don't react with violence to violence. And it continues, verse 53. So do you think that I cannot appeal to my father that he'll at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Peter, I'm the boss. I got way more power than anyone here, and I am not going to strike out. Verse 54. How would the scriptures be fulfilled if we did that, right? How would what Isaiah said, Jeremiah, Zachariah, how would that all come to pass if I just whoop them up right here? No way. I'm not doing that. We're following God's plan. We just, I just wrestled with God and decided his will's the way. We're doing that, Peter. Put your sword away. And then he turns to the crowd and he says to them, have you come out against, oh, have you come out against us a robber with swords to club and capture me? He's like, you're going to treat me like a terrorist? I've been preaching in your temple. He says, day after day I sat in the temple teaching. You didn't seize me then. But here you come with swords in the night. What is going on? He says this is, not, this is the last time he ever kind of speaks up for himself until he gets to the cross. He doesn't speak up for himself. It's not to defend himself. It's not what he's saying here. He's pointing out the irony. You could have got me at any time, and you're going to come get me like I'm some. Anyway. But all this has play, taken place again that the scriptures and the prophets might be fulfilled. It's absurd what they're doing, coming to get Jesus like this. And how do the disciples respond? What do they do? Then all the disciples left him and fled. So the scene begins with them going up to the mountain. Jesus praying with his father. And all of them saying, we will not abandon you. We will not fail. But it ends with them all doing exactly that. I can't help but think of... um, Moses going up the hill and at the foot of the mountain Israel's failing and here's Jesus praying with his father and his disciples failing that's who we are we all fail Jesus no Jesus we're with you we won't we won't they do the exact opposite and they all abandon him to save their own lives Try to think of a movement, a political one, a religious one, any movement. Try to think of any movement that its foundational documents portray its most influential leaders as failures. Full of just complete lack of integrity, abandoning at the first sign of trouble. It doesn't happen. But it's in here, not to point out, right, not to just highlight they, they're terrible and they're no good, but to show that they're going to grow. They're going to get better. When they do put their trust in Jesus, when they follow him, awesome stuff happens. Awesome stuff happens. But there's just something about camping on the failure of the disciples here and contrasting that with the strength that Jesus has that I don't. I can't do that. But Jesus can. And even though this moment of brokenness and weakness, he is the different human. He knows the pain and the grief that we all experience, but he is different. 
he's able to, uh, to succeed where all of us fail. There's, there's this drive in him. He knows absolute confidence. He has absolute confidence in the Father's love for him and his love for the Father and the Father's love for us. That even the horror of drinking the cup of God's wrath all the way to the bottom, he knows that death will not have the final word and that he'll meet up with these failures in Galilee at the end of the story. So who are we? Who do we think we are, right? I think we are setting ourselves up for huge shattered expectations if our hope is in us. Because I'm like Peter. I'm like Matthew. I'm James. I'm going to fail. At our best, sometimes, the followers of Jesus get it right, right? And that's not a scandal, right? That's important part of, of who we are, so important that we're going to put it in the Gospels. Paul, at the end of his ministry, right? Let me think of the amazing things that Paul did, the churches that he planted, the, the amazing ministry that he had at the end of his ministry. He says, I'm not that great of a guy. I am the worst of sinners. There's this u- uniqueness to, to Christianity, to following Jesus. Um, and it's not about like self-loathing or hating ourselves, right? It's totally not about that. It's about recognizing that we are a community of the weak and we're a community that creates space for us to fail so that we can grow together. And the moment we start idolizing the church, like if your faith is strong just because of this building, if, you're, if your faith is in, I don't know, Pastor Joe, he's awesome. Pastor Joe's great. But if you're, if you're relying on him to keep your faith strong, I'm going to tell you, it's not going to work out. You can't trust in us. You need to trust only and hope in Jesus. My hope is in Jesus. Because Jesus isn't frail. He is the rock. Sure, he has a dark night, but he passes through it. He passes the test. Peter didn't. I usually don't. But Jesus did. And my hope is in Jesus So we're going to move to communion, which, like I said, Jesus started right before this story. He started this practice of communion. He attached what he was going to do to this huge history of God saving his people, right? So before we do that, though, is there a failure in your life that you need to lay at the feet of Jesus, that you need to bring to God and just lay it there? recognize it for what it is communion is serious we're not just having a snack you guys this is this is real this is powerful this is a spiritual moment to check yourself and align yourself with god what is his will not yours so if there's something that you need to deal with before you take the cup now's the time There's no rush, okay? We're all going to stand up. You'll come down the center aisle. We'll have the juice and the bread. You'll take one, and then you can go around and find your way back to your seat. There's no rush to take that. Um, You can either come through the aisle and sit at your seat and take it when you're ready, but take it seriously. Pray to God. And if you haven't put your trust and your faith in Jesus, then it kind of doesn't make sense for you to do this because it's important. But if that's something that you're interested in, Absolutely, we will pray with you. You just head over to the prayer wall, and Elder will, will, will be over there to pray with you. Maybe you need to, to meditate on, on Jesus, right? Kneeling with you. And, and know that 
it's not just like you're kneeling with Jesus is what's happening. You're coming alongside of him in what he, in, in what he knows, his strength and his power as you take this bread and drink this cup. It's because of Jesus, the only one who passed the test. He's worth worshiping. He's worth praising. He's worth singing about. He's worth reading about. He's worth meditating on. Jesus is where we put our hope. I'm going to read uh, out of Matthew chapter 26. And elders, would you come forward? We're going to look at the time when Jesus set this up. In verse 26 of chapter 26, it says this. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's enter into a time of, of worship and reflection and uh, take communion together.